You probably know someone who dislikes going to the doctors. Maybe it's your child, parent, friend, or even yourself. A bad experience getting a shot or blood draw can have a long-lasting impact on your willingness to get future shots. In fact, a recent study showed that if fear of needles was absent, we could remove 11.5% of all instances of vaccine hesitancy. Join us today for a conversation with pediatric medical illness and trauma specialist, Dr. Jody Thomas, about why in one in four adults have a fear of needles and what we can do about it. Jody will explain why proper pain management is so important for both children and adults, how to talk to someone who may be unwilling to get a shot, and share tips on how to make your next shot a much more pleasant experience. So Dr. Jody Thomas, it's great to have you join us on the UCLA Live Well podcast. Today, I'd like to focus on something that has been less at the forefront with regards to the COVID-19 vaccine, fear or phobia of needles, one of your expertise. Immunization plays a key role in maintaining global public health But a recent study in the UK showed that the fear of needles was an issue. And if we could remove that, 11.5% of all instances of vaccine hesitancy could be removed. I mean, that's quite incredible. And I'd love to know a little bit more about what you know and teach all of our listeners about the relationship between vaccine hesitancy and fear of needles. First of all, thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to be here. I'm certainly thrilled to be here and talk about this underrecognized but really important issue that is stunningly relevant in our times of the pandemic. So that research that just came out was a really beautifully done piece of work and incredibly helpful to know what we know about the historical data and how it applies right now in this really unique period of history that we all find ourselves living through. Because we know that vaccine hesitancy has always been connected to needle fear and phobia. And we know that in the general population, about 25% or one in four adults and 50% of adolescents and about 63% of kids all have enough fear of needles to impact their healthcare decisions. And this really compounds into avoidance of healthcare, actually poor health outcomes, all sorts of various long-term issues to the point where 60% of adults in the U.S. generally haven't gotten the flu vaccine. Over a quarter of those will admit to the fact that they do that because of the fear of pain and the needle. Hmm. Large number. And I also do say they admit to it because we do know that those numbers are actually larger because there's such a fear of stigma and shame around admitting this as an issue. And we know also just when it comes to kids, about 8% of parents in North America will say that the reason they don't want to vaccinate their child isn't a particular anti-vax stance, but actually about not wanting to cause their kid pain and the fear and the trauma of kind of getting a needle. Hmm. So as we like to call it, the fear of the freak out starts making medical decisions rather than actually what is sort of the best course of action or best practice of care for their child. And the really weird part of this is that there are really simple ways to make this better, that we have 40 years of research telling us how we can really make this essentially a non-issue. 
So backing up, you just said something about the parents are afraid of having their child get the needle stick or the poke. And you said that their own lifetime experiences might be influencing this fear. Where else does this fear come from? Well, that's really where it comes about is those early childhood experiences. So there's actually some really interesting data on that. In the early 80s, we saw an increase in the number of childhood vaccinations kids were getting. So we had the early 80s spike where we then started having the chickenpox vaccine and all of those. And after we have that raise in vaccines, we see an increase in needle anxiety, needle fear, and healthcare avoidance. A similar jump in the early 2000s, when we again had a number of new vaccinations recommended for children. Like I had six vaccines when I was a child, just by what was the common practice at that time. Kids are going to have at least 36 (laughs) by the age of five. And because those are not handled necessarily very well among early providers, and the kids were holding kids down, they have a negative experience. Not only did that child develop the fear, but the parent is more traumatized by that. No one wants to be sitting there in the position of holding their child down. And we also know that the parent's fear and anxiety is the biggest predictor of the child's distress. And Mm -hmm. so it becomes kind of this vicious cycle where, again, there's not a parent on the planet who can't understand that pit in your stomach when you know you're going to have to go and get the kindergarten vaccinations or the two year old shots, which is why we exist as an organization and the Meg Foundation exists was to empower those parents to make that a better and more positive experience. Because we know it's those early childhood experiences that truly set the stage for everything else. Mm. It's often hard to convince people of that. And, you know, people say, you know, what's it matter? It's just a few hard minutes in the doctor's office, no big deal. And the truth is, it's about a lot more than those few hard minutes in the doctor's office. It's really about everything that happens next and the stage that sets. And those become that seeds of fear of doctors and healthcare avoidance. And because it's at such a young age, it really gets imprinted. And those are deep-seated fears that have nothing to do with how tough someone is or how strong they are as an adult but it's really about those early childhood experiences. Wow. So in other words, you're getting conditioned early on. And now that we have so many more vaccines that we're giving young children, it just creates a more imprinted kind of memory as you move forward. You cited two reasons for why people might not like a shot. One, they're sensing it their mother or father or caregiver doesn't. (laughs) And I'm sure the pain is always another reason. Are there other reasons why people are afraid of needles? Yeah, it's really that those early childhood experiences are often negative because pain management and the management of the entire pain experience, because pain is not just the physical pain of a needle going in. It's the anxiety around that experience. And when that isn't managed well as a child, and we're not given the tools and strategies or that whole situation isn't go well, that's really where that fear comes from. And so with appropriate pain management and appropriate management of that experience, kids can actually get through really, really well. And then that positive experience. So it's not only just the fact that there is a shot, it's really about that not being managed in the ways that, again, actually every major pediatric organization in the world would agree would be past practice, 
it just simply doesn't happen. It's not common practice. There's about a 30 to 40 year gap between the research and clinical practice when it comes to how vaccination pain should be managed. It sounds like for a lot of science, I've seen the translation of research to practice is quite limited or it's <laughs> prolonged, I guess. Long and slow, yes. yes. So, you know, why isn't the topic of fear of needles talked about more? Well, it's an excellent question. So it's kind of twofold. In kids, I think a lot of it comes back to we're fighting against expectations (laughs) and negative expectations in particular. I kind of joke that a lot of the challenge of the work that I do is in a weird way, a marketing problem (laughs) because... Both kids, families, and providers all have an idea that sort of the pain of a needle poke or a needle procedure is just sort of an unavoidable, necessary evil, when in fact, it is incredibly solvable problem. And one of the sources in terms of that is the fact that when kind of the powers that be in hospitals currently or in the medical world, really when they were in medical school, the common belief at that point in time and what they were taught is that kids didn't really experience pain. And if they did, it didn't matter because they'd forget it. And we know now that that is incredibly untrue, (laughs) that even when kids have painful procedures pre what we call declarative memory, before they could even remember those experiences, it actually can cause long-term issues and damage. So preemie babies are a fantastic example of that. So we know not doing appropriate pain management, we can literally watch the little gray matter of their brain change. But when we literally you know, 40 years ago, we did surgery on kids without anesthesia because we had the well-intended but mistaken belief that the anesthesia itself would be too difficult for them to manage when we really know that actually the pain was what would cause and, you know, rises in mortality and whatnot. So we're still in this phase of really transforming people's expectation from this is a necessary evil to a solvable problem. And then when we talk about this with adulthood, then we really get into a lack of awareness and shame and stigma. Now, if you really are able to get someone with needle anxiety to open up, one of the first things that I can guarantee you they almost universally say is, I'm the only one I know with this problem. And I'm like, statistically, that is very untrue. <laughs> like, what, is, what are the stats? One, so one in four adults that we all know have this as an issue We just don't talk about it at dinner parties. There is a tremendous sense of shame and embarrassment that is exacerbated by the fact that people don't realize how common it is. So, and then we have that shame and stigma. We're not looking for an answer because we don't believe one. So even over the course of the last year, and we were designing tools for people and we would talk to people, even letting them know that there were solutions like topical anesthetic or vibration. I had fully grown people in tears just saying, what do you mean? Are you kidding me? I could use that? That's a thing? We're like, yes. And because of that lack of awareness and that stigma, there's a lot of people suffering when they truly don't need to. And then we get really concerned about the long-term consequences. And so I'll often ask people, I'm like, who do you think of when I think about adults who you know, don't do doctors, quote unquote? Everyone has like, oh, well, Uncle Ted doesn't go to the doctor. He just doesn't believe in doctors. And my other was like, yeah, Uncle Ted had a really bad experience when he was four. <laughs> and he has carried that fear. And now we're all worried because, you know, I've had family members who end up dying of stage four cancer because they wait six months to get a blood test because of that 
totally preventable thing that happened when they were a young child. And so a lot of the work around this is about raising awareness and reducing stigma and having people understand that there's a solvable problem. And it's not even a hard to solve problem. Okay. So one out of four adults have a fear of needles. And we're trying to get our population to be 80% vaccinated against COVID. And you say this is a solvable problem, but first of all, we have to talk about it or at least amplify or diffuse the information of how to solve it. So that gets me to your hack the vax. Yes. (laughs) Which started way before the COVID vaccine in the sense of your work, but I'd like to hear more about that. Yes. Well, thank you so much. So we really, organizationally, the Meg Foundation, our original focus has been on kids and families. Really, I like to joke that as a pain psychologist and a health psychologist, I was tired of playing cleanup and I really wanted to play prevention. That I was tired of having 27-year-old cancer survivors sit on my couch who survived childhood cancer, but are completely traumatized by the experience of going through treatment. And they would say things to me like, where were you when I was going through treatment? I'm like, excellent question. That is a good, solid question. So our focus was initially on prevention. And so we've spent several years thinking about how do we leverage technology and design and sort of the user experience to give people actually the tools and strategies and skills they need to manage pain experiences more effectively. Well, then the pandemic hits. And we kind of came together as an organization to say, look, I know our first thing was this prevention, but it's time for some cleanup. (laughs) Because we live in this unfortunate time when people now understand the impact on public health. So there's the impact of the individual's health. But now as we're so interdependent and needing to reach that you know, level of herd immunity to reach that level of vaccination communities that we really do need to focus on how do we get as many people vaccinated as possible. And so that gave birth to our Hack the Vax initiative, just really focused on adults and young adults and older kid populations in order to provide them those same skills and tools and information and skill building that they need to be able to manage this experience. So I'm sure all the listeners are thinking, and they're sitting at the edge of their seat. So what is the solution? (laughs) We were talking about why people might have fear of vaccine, right? And, and you, you know, and the translation of science uh, is so slow. So tell us, what can we do? Excellent. So the first thing we always like to say to people is that action is the enemy of anxiety. And that one of the best things we can do is to create a plan. So for instance, sort of the kid version of this is that I'll have parents say to me and be really well-intended yet misguided way that we're just not going to mention they're getting a shot until we pull into the parking lot. (laughs) And then we set everyone up for failure and everyone's freaking out and it all goes downhill from there. But adults are the same way. And I'll tell them, I said, look, just picture you going into the biggest work meeting of your life and no one telling you you had to do it until two minutes before, okay? Like, it's not going to go well. So it's not about totally avoiding the anxiety because it's, again, it's a big, deep-seated fear. It's about giving them an ability to create a plan to overcome and cope with it. So our number one thing, and that's really what the Hackback site and tools do, is to make a plan. 
and prepare people to also use their voice and to be able to ask for what they need from other people in that setting, both friends and supporters, and also the person actually giving you the needle. So one of the easiest, number one, is the tool that all of us probably have in their hand right now as they're listening to this, which is their phone and the power of distraction. Now, there's not a person on the planet who doesn't understand how difficult it can be to catch someone's attention who's deeply sitting there staring at their phone. And so that can serve two purposes. This is a great time to let your kid do it. It's a great time to let your partner or your friend do it. Yes, feel free to ignore me and stare at your phone. <laughs> no problem. And this allows us two things. One, it keeps anxiety at bay. So it's not only good to do during the procedure, but leading up to it. So that anxiety doesn't grow and take hold. But it's also literally that focus of attention changes the way we process pain signals. We literally don't feel it. We certainly feel it in a different way. So it is not just, hey, we didn't notice. It actually is biologically changing the way we process that signal. Similarly, there's simple things like topical anesthetics or numbing cream. And they're available over the counter. You can get really strong ones from your doctor and all of them work. So it changes the sensation. It truly numbs the skin. But it also helps us feel better because, again, we're taking action. We're doing something. And it becomes, in a way, a security blanket of sort going into the experience. One very overlooked way, which is really powerful, is vibration. So there's a couple of products like Buzzy Bee and whatnot, where we actually place something that's vibrating on the skin in between where the needle poke would be and the brain. Another fact that often people don't know is that pain actually occurs in our brain. That's where the sensation, where our ability to experience the sensation is. And vibration is about essentially creating a traffic jam of signals, sort of these neutral signals of vibration, and we block that signal from getting to our brain. So it's incredibly powerful. Vibration also serves another purpose in adults who have a fear of fainting or the vasovagal response. And that's often, it's not common in children, but very common in adults. And there's something about that vibration that we're not entirely sure how it works and that stimulation of the parasympathetic nervous system, but it actually prevents fainting as well. One of the major ones is comfort positioning and touch. So for kids, the number one thing that every bit of research about this would always say is you should never hold a child down for a procedure. It is a recipe for long-term trauma, but we do know that there are ways to comfortably hold a child where they feel safe and comforted by a caregiver or trusted person and still keeping them safe enough to do the procedure or poke. For adults, there is a similar piece that having that person hold your hand, rub your back, that the sensation of someone else touching us, both one distracts our nervous system for something positive to attend to, but that touch actually, again, changes the way we are processing the sensations in our body. Breath, always easy, right? Those good, solid, deep breaths. And that goal is to actually ideally time the out-breath with the injection in order to kind of get max benefit from that. There's other strategies with feeling faint, like muscle tightening, um, asking to lie down, making sure that you're drinking a lot of water about an hour before to make sure that your blood pressure is you know, ideally staying where we want it to be and you're staying in an upright position. And then one of the number one things for adults and kids, but becomes incredibly relevant in children, is to have the parents stay calm and to work on centering themselves. We realize that that's a tall order, but it's a really important one as well. Wow. That's really 
terrific. And I know on your website, you've got some nice videos that help describe this. So we don't all have to memorize it. Yeah, you guys should be taking notes right now. It's fine. We have those. And that's what the what we call the Super Meg Plan Builder. So it's a little interactive piece of tech that quite literally puts the power in the hands of kids by guiding them through making choices on pretty much all the things I just mentioned. And they get to choose because choice is power. The more choice we can give someone in that situation, the better it is for their anxiety. And then that plan is emailed to the parents. And then there are things like guides to top one aesthetic, a guide to comfort positioning and how that works. So truly, it will take everyone through every step they would need to execute this plan. Yeah. So it's like plan and taking action, distraction, numbing cream, the vibration if you can, and the comfort positioning are some of the core messages you're delivering. Sounds like you could practice it even. I'm so happy you brought that up. Um, It is a fantastic thing to practice. And that's exactly what we want to do. Again, just like practicing for the big game or that big meeting or that performance, we don't walk into our presentation and never having spoken it. What we do to control our anxiety is practice that, right? And with kids and adults to be, okay, how do you want to sit? Where are you going to be? What video are you going to watch for distraction? It's not, oh yeah, I want to be distracted. It's actually which one? how much reward is one that I forgot to mention. That's also great. What are we going to do after? So great. We'll go for ice cream. What kind of ice cream are we going to get? What do you think? Where should we go? Should we go here or here? What? Oh, look, we're done. Okay, great. Time for ice cream. Um, so being able to, uh, to do all those things is really, really helpful. Yeah. Well, what you're saying, I, I've seen in my practice and others where people will might do one of the four or five that you're describing. Having the series, though, probably is an additive effect in terms of minimizing the trauma. And, and that's what the data shows, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And again, that's where you love giving choice because doing more than one is better, but also we know them getting to choose which ones of no, I don't actually want topical incentive or like vibration. Some people just don't like the sensation of vibration. So great. We don't have to do that. So that concept of choice is power because a lot of times people in this situation, I think particularly now, even as adults, feel like we don't really have a choice to have this happen. (laughs) So let's have as much choices and how we make it easier. Well, that almost makes you think that people choosing not to be vaccinated is something that makes them feel more powerful too, because that's part of the choice. It is. I mean, it it truly is. I think all of us, as we move through the pandemic, can relate to the feelings of helplessness and uncertainty that we all collectively and individually have to manage. And the decisions and the force of these decisions does offer a little bit of a sense of control, even if that's a false sense of control. And so that is part of that attraction. We also know when it comes to the fear and admitting to fear, one of the issues with that is that it is easier in our current environment to say, I don't believe in the science, or I'm just waiting to see what it is, or I'm worried it was rushed through or any of the other sort of excuses or reasons people have for not being vaccinated, it is easier to say that than admit, actually, the fear of needles and I've been to the doctor in three years and there's no way I'm getting a blood test and this totally freaks me out. 
So we often know that part of the messaging on this is actually going to come from the people who care about that person and who want them to get it and see the fear, but it hasn't often ever been discussed. Yeah, so that gets to my next question. How do you open up a conversation about this topic? Well, it's great that way. We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about this because we know that that's how a lot of people who have this issue are going to probably find out about it is through someone who cares about them. Right? They are best friend, our partner, our parents, someone. And the first thing to do is to normalize and empathize and acknowledge that this fear is common. Their biggest fear is they're going to be shamed for it and that this changes your opinion of them, right? We think they're weak in some way or failing in some way. And so we acknowledge that the fear is common. We remind them that they are not weak or totally irrational for feeling this way because that's often the response we get, just suck it up and do it, right? Like this is the attitude that people have. It's the attitude people have when I talk to them about this as an issue. They're like, people just need to suck it up and do it. This is ridiculous. And so Unfortunately, that is a response they're going to get a lot of the time from people. And so when we're trying to talk to someone, being able to do the opposite, acknowledge that the fear is common, remind them that they're not weak or irrational, use gentle, non-judgmental reassurance. Like, yeah, this makes sense. These rough experiences happen if you do. And very importantly, let them know that there's something to do about it. This is where we encourage them to take action. Like, hey great, add this resource, we can figure this out. And ideally, we can figure this out together. That empathy and connection and a lack of judgment are the things that create an environment where there's a possibility for some action. Well, that gives me a lot of hope. If you think of the large prevalence of those that are afraid of needles, if we could get this message across that they're not alone and they're also, there's solutions to this fear. Yeah, it doesn't honestly help in terms of actions. Just be like, yeah, a lot of people have that. <laughs> You're like, yeah. what do I do about this? Exactly. And so, connecting them with what they need to do something is where we can see some really big movement. And the hack the vax is a place where we can go and remember what to do and have others go to. And those listeners that might know someone who's vaccine hesitant and discovers it's really because of the pain of it. We do. And we discover this, like we've heard phenomenal stories. We love getting our emails from people who we have, you know, the 80 year old man who emails and saying, look, I haven't had a vaccination or a poke in 30 years, but I knew that I wanted to see my grandkids again. And I knew I wanted to be okay. Thank you so much. This is the first time I've been able to force myself to get to the doctor and do what I needed to do. I feel like that's enough. Or the 32-year-old who's like, I haven't had a vaccine or a blood test in 10 years, but I wanted to protect myself. Thank you. Let alone sort of the kids and all of that. So we are encouraged and enthused that this is actually getting to the people who really do want to protect themselves and their communities and their loved ones, but this is the barrier that they're dealing with. Well, your foundation, the Meg Foundation, deals with pain in general, which is something beyond the vaccine. Give me a little background of what is the Meg Foundation and also what led you to create this foundation. I'm grateful for that question. So the Meg Foundation came about for, because we were discussing before, that there's this massive gap between the research and the clinical practice of pain management. And as someone who has worked in this field for 25 years now, 
as I titled the first blog on the Meg Foundation website, kids hurt when they don't need to, and that's dumb. <laughs> so at the most blunt and non-scientific language, <laughs> that is in essence what led us here. And so, you know, a lot of my background, I'm still on faculty as adjunct at Stanford University School of Medicine, and I was full faculty at that time. And really sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley with friends and colleagues who are experts in design and user experience. Because as I like to tell people, like this shouldn't have to be where kids just happen to find someone who's a pain psychologist or a great child life specialist. They shouldn't have to be lucky enough to have someone like there because there's never enough of us. We should be able to make that mass accessible. Every kid and every child, no matter where they are, should absolutely have access to the skills and tools they need to manage this experience. And we live in an age now where this should be possible. You know, the vast majority of humans have a phone in their pocket. And so how can we leverage the power of technology and design to empower people? The field of pain has been trying to kind of solve this problem institutionally for about 40 years. And that's just not moving as quickly as we want. And so the Meg Foundation's take is to go directly to families, kids, and adults with the tools and strategies that they need. And how do we deliver that effectively? And so I was really lucky enough to sit in the middle of the literally the best experts in pain in the world on our board and advisory board and some fantastic people in design and marketing and all of those things. And how do we kind of bring all those superpowers together? And that really kind of gave birth to the foundation and with the idea that this is for the common good, that we are here to share this with whoever wants it. (laughs) We partner with institutions, organizations, colleges, universities, whoever it is that we think they can use our tools to serve their audience and their customer base even better. So that's kind of where we came from was we think this is a solvable problem. And when it's solved, it's one of those unique problems on the planet where it's not only about that individual, it's about their family. It makes it better for them. It makes it better for medical providers. No medical provider got into this in order to cause people and kids distress. There's no one did that. And it can be in the age of so much burnout. And we're so worried about our medical providers wanting to know that they have what they need to make their jobs easier, better, and less stressful. And then the impact as we're all living through on public health. We all need to do this together. So that's been the inspiring and honestly fun part to do is how do we take this kind of unique thing and, um, and bring it to people? Well, what's really striking, I think, in looking at some of these sort of low-hanging fruits, so to speak, like the vaccine, where people are exposed to that, everyone's exposed to that. And then there are those that have then unique medical conditions that then make them exposed to other kinds of, of procedures that can be quite painful. And working with them upstream, like you're recommending can prevent so much deferred health maintenance later in life because you don't have necessarily the same negative feelings about your providers. If you have a pleasant experience from day one of life, basically, or even really. So day one of life and our procedure with kids who with like chronic illness. I mean, first of all, I love that everyone involved in our organization has some sort of personal story. And when we talk about our inspiration, have like, One of my very good friends, his two-year-old was diagnosed with cancer. And my first instinct was to get on a plane and be there as soon as possible because I knew why I couldn't protect 
Emmy from treatment and what she was going to have to go through, we could absolutely protect her from the pain of those procedures. And so I flew out there to train um, her mom and dad, both really good friends of mine and now on our board, on what they needed to do to make sure that was okay. And she did. To this day, Emmy is doing beautifully now. She's starting kindergarten. She's doing great. But she would tell you that one of the greatest stories is her mom called me one day and said, okay, I got to tell you this, Jody. Every day, I ask Emmy at nap time what her favorite part of the morning is. And she's like, her favorite part of the morning was seeing Miss, I think it was Miss Ellie or something. I can't remember the name. And I was accused that. She's like, she's the person who pokes her in the lap. Oh. So her favorite thing today was going and getting a, her blood drawn. Wow. And that's how a non-issue us doing this has made it for her. Amazing. So this is what we also want that things when kids are diagnosed and those first 24 to 48 hours, when there is so much happening that we can be there virtually to teach parents of skills and not only avoid that initial trauma, the essence of trauma is the feelings of uncertainty and helplessness and incompetence in the face of a perceived stressor. And what is more stressful and our kid being getting some sort of traumatic diagnosis. And when we can go in and give parents a true course of action and say, do this and it helps, then we not only help that moment, but we really are preventing that long-term PTSD and trauma that we can't protect what's going to happen, but we can make people feel powerful and in control at those moments of vulnerability. And that really, again, talk about that long-term impact that goes far beyond pain. Mm-hmm. So powerful. I mean, it almost feels like everyone should have a prescription to your website <laughs> when they get diagnosed with something. Oh, that's where we're going. I mean, that's <laughs> we're institutionally independent and we're this and we're a nonprofit yeah. because that's exactly what we want. We want people to feel perfectly like here, go to this website, start here. Great. Yeah. We're in the middle of, you know, trying to do the things and save your child and do those things. But here's a trusted source. This is good information. <laughs> it's, right. you know, it's trusted. We're not just making things up in the sea of the internet. Wearing my pediatric hat. I mean, the, the last thing that I ever want to have to do is to prescribe a pain medicine per se. So prescribing your website. I mean, obviously you have to prescribe pain medicine yeah. in circumstances, but this is where you can start your website. So there is a website that we built for Stanford Children's Health that's publicly available for everyone called Imagine Action. And that really is introducing that concept of sort of the biopsychosocial model of pain. So these things of we use that to introduce the concept that guided meditation, self-hypnosis, these things are powerful. And so again, Yes, sometimes we need pain medications, but we want all of those patients that you're dealing with to understand that there's a number of factors that are going to impact and make their experience better. And even better, they can be in charge of them, right? That you might need to write the script for medication, but they're the ones who can practice their self-regulation skills and get their things. And the more we can empower them, the more we know that's going to be associated with better health outcomes in the short and long term. This is really inspiring and really, I find so impactful for so many age groups, probably all age groups to practice what you're proposing. And 
I'm thinking that, you know, chronic pain, which is another version of pain that can happen, uh, many of these approaches that you're describing for the immediate pain of a vaccine can be practiced. Is that correct? It is absolutely correct. And it actually becomes like a very helpful way to introduce that concept, right? It's often hard for people to kind of understand initially the differences between sort of that acute procedural pain and chronic pain, because truly these, especially the non-pharmacological ways of managing a pain experience, the importance of those increases a million fold when we're talking about chronic pain, that it's not going to be the pill. We do not have a pill that exists at the moment that's going to take care of those experiences in the vast majority of cases. And so them understanding that model of, hey, the pain experience is about a lot more. There's the biological factors, there's the psychological factors, and there's the social factors. And being able to get that idea, this is where like, hey, mom, when you're calm, like stress is contagious, but so is calm. And how you're feeling and doing actually impacts your child. Now that's true in the vaccination. It's incredibly true when it comes to chronic pain. And that psychological factor of knowing, hey, when I'm in a bad mood, everything hurts more. Like, uh, my classic example I always give, even when I'm training, I was recently in a children's hospital as sort of doing an evaluation for them and assessing them. And I was sitting in a room full of 50 residents and said, hey, who here thinks they could explain or has even been taught the biopsychosocial model of pain? Three hands went up. Right? I'm like, okay, this is a problem. <laughs> um, yeah. okay, start here. And I will often say when I'm training, like, okay, who understands the fact that when you stub your toe and you're in a bad mood, it hurts a lot worse than you stub your toe when you're in a good mood. Great analogy. Yes. And everyone's like, yes, like it has immediacy and I'm like, great. So that is about a million times more important when we're talking about chronic pain. So this is, yes, it is not crazy. It is not insane. It is not weird that there are psychological factors to our pain experience. It is simply how we are designed as humans. And when we can accept that and understand that, then we have so many more tools at our disposal for handling particularly chronic pain experiences. Well, that's very encouraging. And I know that it's rare to have a medical setting that is devoted to this kind of approach. I used to work at Venice Family Clinic and they have a integrative pain management clinic for adults. Uh And it's uh, quite something and it uses a lot of these kinds of strategies that you're describing for those patients who haven't been able to manage their pain in other ways, you know, with acupuncture and meditation and other forms of complementary medicine. So, you know, given your long-term work devoted to this and now your Hack the Vax campaign, what are your final like sort of sage comments that you'd like to share with all of us in terms of where do you want us to go and what will come of all of this? Well, I can tell you what we're hoping for. As much as the pandemic has been so hard on all of us, it's also a unique opportunity. And I was on a panel not that long ago with a bunch of international folks talking about this and that we really hope that this becomes an opportunity to truly talk about and transform the way we think about pain. And for us as a pediatrician, like in pediatrics, kids in pain, but that long-term issue that because there's so much focus, there's never been a time when there's been more focus on vaccinations in modern history at all. And the importance of it has never seemed more important because it isn't. 
And I think any of us in the medical field know that this is going to be a thing going forward. And the perk of that is that if we can truly get people to change their thinking about this, really understand there are things they can do to be powerful and change this experience for themselves, that transforms everything. Yes, we're focused on vaccinations, but that means that Uncle Ted doesn't hesitate to go to the doctor and get that blood test and understand that that early diagnosis, that we have kids for whom they see healthcare system as something positive and good and not something to be feared, that we're really seeing this as a hopeful transformation of the relationship between people and the healthcare system, and that we really see pain as a solvable problem rather than a necessary evil. Well, I think that's a great way to end this podcast, given that it's very hopeful. And I, I'm with you on that. I see that certainly your journey is moved forward in terms of informing people about the science-based interventions and, and steps you can take to reduce pain and the trauma of vaccination. So Dr. Jody Thomas, thank you so much. If there's anything that you didn't cover that you'd like to before we say goodbye, I, this is your chance. All right, well, I think just the thing we want to say is that we really want people to use their voice and speak up. Meg Foundation is we create change by creating demand. And the more people who understand these are options and are creating demand on our healthcare system to do better and be better, the more quickly we're going to see this transformation. So use your voice, use our resources, use good resources, whatever they are. And really, the more we transform what you're doing, this is going to transform and change for everyone. So use your voice, speak up and let us support you in any way we possibly can. That's fantastic. And we're so grateful to you because boy, do we need to get to the heart or the bottom of the reasons why people are choosing not to be vaccinated at this very critical time in our history. So Dr. Jody Thomas, thank you so much. Thank you again for joining us. For more information about today's episode, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcasts. Today's podcast was brought to you by the Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. To stay up to date with our episodes, subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating to tell us how we're doing. And if you think you know the perfect person for us to interview next, please tweet your idea to us at HealthyUCLA. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and well-being.